This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Program Director for the UCSF Family and Community Medicine Residency. She's also faculty in UCSF's Addiction Medicine Fellowship and helped to write the National Guidelines on the Management of Opioid Use Disorder in Pregnant and Parenting Women and Their Children. And Diana is going to talk to us today about the pediatric effects of parental substance use. We're going to take a couple minutes for questions after uh, her talk because she's got to go pick up a child after that. So, Diana, thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you to the conference schedulers for being so accommodating. Um, so, yeah, this is, I think, going to be a little bit of a different talk. I... Um, I spend most of my time thinking about addiction and how we address it, both as clinicians and as a society. Um, so you're going to see a lot of that come out in what I'm talking about. I'm going to be focusing on the impact of parental substance use on pediatric development, but I can't help but include some commentary on our society and the way we treat people with addiction. So that's going to be all mixed in. In fact. Okay, I've got nothing to disclose. Nobody's paying me anything besides my salary. <clears throat> um, so today we're going to explore the fetal and pediatric impact of intrauterine drug exposure. We're also going to explore the pediatric impact of parental substance use. And I'm finding more and more as I think about this, I'm finding it really useful to separate those as two related but separate issues that actually require different kinds of interventions. Um, and then we're going to talk about strategies for mitigating the impact of parental substance use, including intrauterine exposure. I want to start, here's my commentary to begin with. So people with substance use disorder have a disease that responds to treatment. This is a graph of relapse rates for other chronic diseases. Um, this is from an old study where they looked at people who had a chronic disease that was well controlled and they watched them for a year and watched what percent of them lose control at some point in that year. Um, and it's not that different for substance use disorder than for some of these other, as, as it is for some of these other chronic diseases, the real difference is that when your hypertension goes out of control, it's like you have a troubling visit with your doctor and they increase your meds and you're back to okay. Um, whereas with substance use disorder, when you relapse, it can be that your whole life falls apart, right? So it's a much more dramatic relapse. But the nature of the disease is not that different from other chronic diseases. I could talk with you about that for an hour, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, what's been nice as the opioid crisis has unfolded is that the public health conversation really has acknowledged that. With the opioid crisis, there's been a relatively sympathetic response to the opioid crisis. That is in part because of the groundwork that's been laid by addiction medicine, where we have a lot better understanding of the neurologic um, antecedents to addiction and the neurologic and bio, kind of organic nature of addiction. Um, and it's partly because of racism, right? The opioid epidemic is primarily throughout the country a white epidemic, and so the public health response and the public response in general has been a more sympathetic response than our response to other drug crises in the past. And 
And I think it's very important for us to be aware of that so that we can do better. Um, the next time there's a, a drug crisis that may not be predominantly white. Um, I will say in California, actually, the opioid crisis is much more multiracial. Um, so it's a little bit different here in California, but, I th but that is an important part of what's happening nationwide. <clears throat> now, if you look, these are some typical images from public health and sort of uh, lay press about the opioid crisis, and you can see how sympathetic they are. Like there's somebody who's trapped by the pills, and the opioid epidemic hits home. Um, these are the images you see if you Google addicted mother. So the images suddenly become totally unsympathetic, right? The image over on your left, the main character is the fetus, the second character is the needle, and the mother is like some kind of drug delivery mechanism. And we see that, we see that, I see it so intensely in, what in the conversations we're having around pregnant people using drugs. Um, in this one up here, the baby's being born out of a syringe as though there's like no parent at all involved and all that this baby is made out of is, is its exposure to heroin. And so I, I want to just highlight that because this is a really emotional issue. And it's an issue where we get extremely protective of the fetus, which is, you know, a reasonable, a reasonable thing. And also, I find it increasingly important to just recall that there, there's a mother, too. There's a mother who has problems and needs help, too. And when we fall into kind of demonizing the mother and sort of reifying the fetus, when we talk about this issue, we forget the reality that they're actually connected and they kind of need each other and care about each other. And when I work with pregnant women who have uh, substance use disorder, the question they ask me always when we're discussing treatment options is, well, what's best for the baby? What can I do to make sure my baby doesn't have withdrawal? Like, they, they want healthy babies. And babies want moms, right, who are present and healthy and around. And so this, this tendency we have to separate the needs of these two beings as though they're... they're not intimately reliant on each other, I think is, um, it's an inaccurate, it's an inaccurate understanding of what's happening. In these states in the country, pregnancy is considered child abuse, um, which you can imagine impacts people's desire to show up for prenatal care or tell us they need help. Um, you can also imagine that it impacts the conversation about um, abortion access when you start labeling fetuses as children. And so, I've already said this, but, but the thing that I, I want us to remember over and over again is that if we want to help these children and these fetuses and these babies, we really need to help the whole family. Because what's good for the baby is usually the same thing as what's good for the family. So I mentioned earlier that I'm interested in separating out the impact of intrauterine exposure and the impact of parental use during childhood. And so I've put up just kind of some theoretical, theoretically we might imagine that parental use could lead to behavioral issues in the child, to um, an increased risk of substance use later for the child, to cognitive issues for ADHD, 
Um, and, and then intrauterine exposure might also lead to all of those things. And also we'd be looking specifically for congenital anomalies, intrauterine fetal demise, um, growth restriction, preterm birth. So we're going to look at some of the literature on specific drugs and see what we actually know about the impact of intrauterine exposure and parental use. So anyone know which of the following drugs is the most likely to cause fetal harm? Raise your hand if it's heroin. <laughs> okay, people wanted to, I'm going to do, uh, if it's methamphetamine, okay, if it's alcohol, I mean, yeah, right, 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 and second is probably tobacco, actually, yeah, so you know this, because you know about FASD um, better than, than most audiences, but we spend so much time getting really worked up uh, here, and like, this has been going on forever, and we've not gotten a handle on it, so... Good job knowing that. So we're going to go through the different drugs and drug classes that we know enough about to talk about. Um, and I'm going to start with opioids because that's where all the press is. So I'm going to talk just really quickly about maternal risks and then fetal pediatric and neonatal risks. So maternal risk, <clears throat> if you're injecting, you have a whole bunch of infectious risks. Without injection, you still actually have higher rates of STI, higher rates of violence, um, withdrawal, and for some reason this slide does not have overdose and death, which should be on here. And really it's the withdrawal and the overdose and death that are attributable to the opioids. The rest are attributable to things that come with opioid use disorder. Now for the fetus, the newborn, and the child, as the child grows, there is increased risk of preterm birth among uh, children born to women with opioid use disorder. There's increased risk of growth restriction and low birth weight. There's increased risk of exposure, exposure to infections, exposure to other drugs. Now, all of these are not actually caused by the opioid. And the reason I can say that is that when you treat opioid use disorder with buprenorphine, which is an opioid that we give for the treatment of opioid use disorder, when you take when, it, when a pregnant person takes that throughout pregnancy, their risk of preterm birth and of growth restriction normalizes, right? So we don't think it's the opioid itself that's causing the problem. We think it's a bunch of other things that are associated with opioid use. And I've got a slide on that in just a minute. Um, there's a little... This should be like half an asterisk here because maybe it's caused by the opioid. Some mixed evidence about cognitive and behavioral issues, and I'll show you some studies, maybe caused by the opioid, more likely, in my opinion, caused by the, the environment um, after birth. And then, of course, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, or NOWS, um, occurs in 50 to 80% of exposed infants. Um, it has not been associated, and we have looked, has not been associated with developmental issues further down the line, but is a difficult phase for the neonate to have to go through and for the family actually to have to go through. So here's that image I was promising you. This was a, a paper that was published er, last year where they explored, and I know this print is small, the many factors other than opioid exposure that are impacting a fetus of a mom with opioid use disorder. So maybe poorer prenatal care, maybe decreased access to health care, maybe neighborhood violence, maybe um, 
maternal, the mothers have higher rates of adverse childhood events, they have trauma histories, they may have emotional dysregulation, they may have nutrition access issues. So there's all these things that I'm not going to read through all of them that are impacting the fetus during birth, during pregnancy. And one of the things we want to target when we're treating these parents is all of this stuff, right? So it may be okay, and this is what we've seen specifically with buprenorphine, we can replace the opioid with another opioid. If, if that stabilizes all this, the fetus seems to do okay. All right. Here's a painful, painful slide. So an example, I'm going to show you two studies looking at the impact of um, opioids on development. So this is a study where they looked at 72 children, and they tested them at one, two, three, four and a half, and eight and a half years. These were children of mothers who used opioids and other substances. It is very difficult to find people who only use opioids and don't smoke or drink or occasionally use other substances. So these are poorly controlled studies. Um, this study actually only, in terms of the environment, controlled for foster placement and heroin use as opposed to prescription use. And what they found was that in the, in the female new children, they found a statistically significant difference in cognitive scores at eight and a half years, but not prior to that, which I think suggests that it was more of an environmental issue than an intrauterine exposure issue. Um, in the boys, interestingly, they found p-values of statistical significance throughout, which it's really hard to interpret that, what that means. Does that mean that boys are more vulnerable to opioid exposure? Is it that they're more vulnerable to the stressors, like elevated cortisol levels, intrauterine? Are they more vulnerable to withdrawal? It's, we don't know, but that is one finding. <clears throat> more recently, there was a study where they followed a group of women who had been treated with buprenorphine and methadone during their pregnancy, meaning there was continued opioid exposure, but an absence, a resolution of those other stressors. And they measured a whole bunch of things in these children, including going into their homes and looking for um, acceptance in parenting, organization in the home, learning materials that were available, and then all of these indicators of various, various aspects of development. And what they found was that up to 36 months, children follow a path of normal development. Um, growth parameters suggest that prenatal opioid exposure does not affect normal physical development, and conclusions are similar in terms of cognitive language, sensory, and temperament. So again, we think that if we can normalize those, normalize those social exposures, we can actually resolve most of what we see in some of the studies. Cocaine and methamphetamine use. So maternal risks are many. So in addition to the sort of infective risks of injection, there are all kinds of cardio, cardiovascular risks and um, psychosis and formication. Do people know what formication is? It's where you feel like there are bugs crawling in your skin, and so there's that picking that goes with it. Um, the psychosis associated with methamphetamine use specifically can last up to a year after stopping use. It's really profound. For a fetus, a neonate, and a child, we see explicit impact on the placenta. 
from the repeated hypertension that comes with exposure to cocaine and methamphetamine. Um, so we see placental insufficiency, which means less blood flow to the fetus, which means growth restriction, reduced birth weight. We have higher risk of those. We have higher risk of placental abruption. Um, higher risk of intrauterine fetal demise, uh, and maybe in terms of development, maybe some attentional issues. I'll show you a little bit about what we know there. But I want to remind us, and I alluded to this at the beginning, that back when it was the 80s and 90s, when we were seeing increasing rates of crack cocaine use, the media went wild on this notion of crack babies and absolutely demonized mothers about their use. And, and I use this, again, to highlight the racial differences between what we're doing now and what we did then, but also to remind us, like, we're leaning in that direction a little bit uh, right now when we talk about uh, pregnant women using opioids in the press. I think it's really important for us to learn from our history because here's a systematic review that came out in 2010, so after all of that had died down, the potentially stigmatizing label of the so-called crack baby preceded the evidence now accumulating from well-designed perspective investigations that have revealed less severe sequelae um, than originally anticipated. Prenatal cocaine exposure appears to be associated with statistically significant but subtle decrements in neurobehavioral cognitive and language functions especially when viewed in the context of other exposures and the caregiving environment. Okay. So basically the same thing I've been saying about opioids. There may be some subtle decrements, but they may, all, they may be either moderated by or caused by the environment. Here's a, t here's a study where they took adolescents who had had over 99 days of in utero cocaine exposure, and they measured all these tests. And you can see that the they're pretty similar. There are maybe a few places where there's some subtle, subtly lower scores among the adolescents who were exposed to cocaine in utero, but it's quite subtle, actually. And the kind of thing that could probably be mediated by support in the home. So tobacco. So we know the maternal risks of tobacco use are many. For the newborn and the fetus, what we see is, again, placental insufficiency from the vasoconstriction caused by nicotine, um, intrauterine growth restriction for the same reason, again, an increased risk of placental abruption, again, an increased risk of preterm birth. Um, for newborns, there's an increased risk of sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, if parents are smoking cigarettes in the home, we don't know the mechanism of that, but it's real. We also see facial clefts. Um, and we see some evidence of maybe some ADHD and increased rates of substance use in adolescence. Again, are these two from the home environment? We don't know. Cannabis. This is an area of great interest and debate right now. And there's very little evidence to work with, as we argue. Um, so parental risks. In adolescence, there does appear to be an increased risk of developing psychosis and depression among people who use cannabis in adolescence. That's a strong correlation. Um, we also know that there's an association with decreased school performance, reduced cognitive performance. So in general, those of us in the addiction medicine world 
who tend to be like legalize everything or at least decriminalize everything, um, we still get nervous about cannabis use in adolescence. That's something we try to prevent. In adulthood, there do seem to be minimal risks. There is a risk of developing cannabis use disorder. Uh, the, the research suggests that the rate of development of cannabis use disorder is about 10%, um, which is higher than probably most people think. Um, so that's, that's the main risk of cannabis use for the mother. For the fetus, really, as I said, scant literature, lots of debate, maybe increased risks of memory issues, attentional issues, quality of data is very poor, and that's all I have to say about that, unfortunately. We can talk more in the questions if people have specific questions. Alcohol, again, you probably have a good sense of maternal risk of alcohol use. Pediatric risks, you also have a good sense of in this audience. That's clear, right? So really, FASD is the thing we're most worried about with um, intrauterine exposure to alcohol. Um, and you probably know the literature on FASD as well as I do, but you know that we haven't identified a safe level of use. And what we do know is that there seems to be a dose response. So the more somebody drinks, the more likely there is, they are to develop FASD. But we have not been able to say that below a certain threshold, you don't have an elevated risk. And that's why the current recommendation is not to drink during pregnancy. So this is a table that basically summarizes most of what I just said. Um, the things... Yeah, this is most of what I just said. And, and what you'll notice is that, not surprisingly, it's really nicotine and alcohol that seem to have the greatest known impact anyway. Um, and that we have a lot of questions about whether the impacts on development are environmental or organic. Okay. So how do we support children whose parents use substances? Um, and there are three things that I would recommend. One is that we treat parental substance use and that we think of it not just as maternal substance use but parental substance use because it's really whoever's in the house with child care responsibilities that is impacting that child's development. We enhance parenting and attachment. I'm going to talk with you a little bit in a few minutes about what we know about parenting among people who use substances and how that impacts attachment. And then that we work societally and also individually to enhance the home school and after school environment for these kids. Um, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, I know. So I will tell you one of the recommendations of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration around this is specifically the place they've looked at the data the most closely and made recommendations is around children who are exposed to opioids in utero. Their recommendation is that we screen according to the regular well-child screening recommendations for development. So they're not recommending additional developmental screening um, and that we respond as we would with any other developmental issue on our screening. Okay, so treating parental substance use. There are many, many, many options for treating parental substance use. 
Um, there are lots of places you can go. You can go to residential treatment, outpatient treatment. You can come to a clinic and get medications straight just from a clinic, which can be quite effective, particularly for opioid use disorder. Um, you can go to things like 12 steps programs, peer support programs. Smart recovery is like a version of AA that doesn't require you to submit to a higher power. Um, so there are a lot of options for peer support, actually. You can hospitalize people. You can put people in dual diagnosis programs that are specific to managing both psychiatric conditions and substance use. And in any of these settings, you can provide people with evidence-based and effective medications. And we have medications for all of the drugs that I have put up here. We have good meds for alcohol. We have good meds for tobacco. We have great meds for opioids. And we have like emerging meds for, for methamphetamine use disorder that we can use these days. So we can help parents. And we don't need to just write them off. Parenting and attachment is more complicated, but just as critical. So there are a bunch of studies looking at parenting and attachment style among parents who use substances. Um, we have found that there's an increased level of disorganized attachment among children who have parents who use substances. Disorganized attachment is caused by parental inconsistency, right? Parents inconsistently being available to help you with your emotionally stressful situations leads to this disorganized attachment style. Um, the kids are less likely to seek contact with their parents when they're stressed. They're more avoidant when they're stressed, so they're like withdrawing to themselves instead of comforting with the parent, which is considered kind of a healthy attachment approach. Um, <clears throat> and that those differences are to some degree mediated or predicted by how much the mother, before having the baby, thought she was going to have a hard time caring for the baby. Right? So that maternal anxiety or instinct does predict how, how it's going to go after the baby's born. So this is one of the places we can start to intervene and work with people while they're pregnant. Um, other studies looking at the parenting style have shown that parents who use substances don't have a different philosophy of parenting. Their beliefs about parenting are actually similar to people who, do, who don't use substances, but their behaviors are substantially different. Okay? So they tend to have a less, quote, adaptive parenting style. They, there tends to be, they tend to be more critical. Um, less kind of patient with the errors that their children make. There tends to be more negativity, more threatening, and negative reinforcement in the parenting style. Um, the quality of the relationship between the parent and the child is strongly mediated by maternal depression and stress. And so again, this is a clear place for us to intervene in these families. Um, we see less maternal structuring. So maternal structuring is when the mom sort of sets the rules and says, here's, here's, here's what time we go to bed, here's when we brush our teeth, here's what we're going to do today. Instead, there's a little bit more of like the day is flowing and I'm just trying to get through it. As a mother, I know both states well. <laughs> um, right, we all struggle. It's just some, some have more to struggle with. Um, there's, there's a higher, higher probability that it will have multiple other people caring for their children periodically. And again, just to what I just said, some of us have more to struggle with. This is not because they don't want 
to parent in the same way that many of us want to parent. There are just so many other stressors and needs and things they have to take care of that make it quite difficult. So this isn't about demonizing people for doing it wrong. This is really about just characterizing how these things get in the way of the kind of parenting that really supports these kids. Um, this is another really intervenable one. So mothers with substance use disorder tend to be less clear about what cues their kids are giving them. So I, knowing, oh, this means my baby's hungry. This means my baby's tired. Now I'm going to respond to that cue appropriately. That, isn't, that doesn't come as naturally. Um, often, I think, because they, they didn't get that modeling necessarily themselves, right? So specifically teaching people about cues how to notice them, how to address them. It's a useful intervention that we can do in the first few days of life, actually. So interventions. So integrating parenting classes during pregnancy, integrating it into substance use treatment, very helpful. Um, breastfeeding is a really helpful intervention, actually. So for Babies who've been exposed to opioids in utero, we strongly recommend breastfeeding, actually. It reduces the risk of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, not because of the opioids going into the breast milk to the baby. There are very minimal opioids that make it through. But we think it's actually the holding and the skin-to-skin -skin and the suckling and the eye contact and all the things that go with nursing. So we really want to support that um, kind of bonding and that opportunity to bond when it's possible to do so teaching infant cues, as I mentioned, and then parenting classes that focus on specifically attachment and how to build healthy attachment and consistency, which is part of building healthy attachment, support groups with a parenting focus, and there are a lot of evidence-based curricula available for helping parents really support children after um, drug exposure in utero. So I listed some of them here. And then the last thing of the three that I said, so treating parental substance use, um, assisting with parenting and attachment, and providing an enriched environment, right? So universal preschool, Head Start programs, um, filling the home with books, these kinds of interventions, um, and, and supporting the parents so that they can really create a, a nourishing environment in the home, I think is one of the most powerful interventions we can do. So in summary... Parental substance use is harmful to the whole family, including the child. Um, intrauterine exposure can be harmful, and postpartum exposure, the home environment, can either mitigate or amplify whatever happened uh, in the intrauterine environment. And by treating substance use disorder in pregnancy, providing parenting support, and enriching the home and school environment, we can help children and their families thrive. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.